Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. And you can open your Bibles to Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Every year at this time, articles are published dealing with a conflict in the land of Israel. But it's not the usual conflict you'd expect, the one between the Palestinians and the Israelis that gets the spotlight. It's the conflict between monks of various Orthodox Christian sects who serve at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Here's how one article that came out yesterday portrays it. Quote, As Orthodox Christians descended on Jerusalem this Easter week to visit the holiest site in their religion, a more earthly concern hovered over the holiday. Would rival monks keep the peace this year or again engage in clashes? In a centuries-long conflict, Egyptian Coptic monks and Ethiopian Orthodox monks have competed for the control of a small monastery located on the roof of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, built at the site where Christians believe Christ was crucified, entombed, and resurrected. Despite the monastery's sacred location, it has become a site of petty quarrels that occur on a near-annual basis and sometimes even boil over into violence. One Egyptian monk is quoted as saying, When I first arrived in Jerusalem, I was shocked. I was expecting to see a holy land where everyone is living in peace and light. But instead, I found a place where everyone is constantly fighting, even inside the holiest church. Now, articles like this have a correct premise, that those who are Christ's will obey his commands. But they also have two faulty assumptions that go along with it. Faulty assumptions that even uh, this Egyptian monk had as well. First, that the people that they're looking at, in this case, the monks, are Christians simply because they say they are. And second, that true Christians will perfectly and consistently obey all the time without error. Now, these faulty assumptions have caused great confusion about what defines a Christian and what defines the church? And this is not just confusion in the world, but as this article even says, confusion within the church itself. But the Bible is very clear, is it not, in its definition of both the Christian and the church? We just have to pay attention. What Scripture teaches is that all mankind is guilty of sinful rebellion against the holy God and is due the just penalty of God's punishment throughout eternity. But by his grace, and his grace alone, God has saved and redeemed a specific group of people through his death on the cross in our place, and then given, over, given victory over death through his resurrection from the grave. He has then made this people his own by pouring out his spirit into their hearts and converted this group of people from spiritual death to spiritual life so that they might know him, worship him, and obey him as Lord. It is these people and these people alone that are Christ's new covenant people, over whom he reigns as Lord and King. Friends, this and this alone is Christ's true church across time and space. But only Christ truly knows who these people are. Theologians have long called this group the invisible church. But each week, every one of these citizens of his new kingdom meet regularly in local churches across the world to proclaim that they are his. It is the church that is to be an earthly assembly and an earthly embassy 
representing a heavenly homeland. And in doing so, it is a refuge for anyone who has been truly converted at the heart level by the Holy Spirit. They exist in this foreign land of the world, and as the Lord converts their heart, they want to find refuge in the embassy of their homeland. But the reality is that when this invisible church gathers, they are not the fullness of the visible church that assembles. For they are joined with others who have not been converted at the heart level, but who proclaim also to be Christians. This phenomenon is what church fathers have called the invisible church that sits among the visible church. In other words, not everyone who proclaims Christ or is part of the visible church is actually converted at the heart. And so the only sign we can know true conversion has occurred in our own heart or in others is endurance in obedient faith. Christ is very clear that those who are his will hear his voice and show love for him by following his commands. And they will do so until they are taken home in glory. That's the endurance piece. But what we show if we do not obey his commands, and we do that consistently, is that our hearts were never converted in the first place. And our pursuit of Christ or our attendance at church was for some secondary reason. Only obedience acted out in faith over time shows who is in Christ and who is not. Time and truth are friends. Now, because we are caught in this time in between the two advents of Christ, not only will those who are truly Christ be interacting with false believers in the church, which will cause conflict, but those of us who are converted Christians are also just works in progress. Our flesh wages war against his spirit, and often it is in the collateral damage of that war that sanctification happens. As our flesh is destroyed, humility sets in, and we grow in our faith and obedience to Christ and love for one another. And so we are going to know and we can in fact expect difficulty and struggle and conflict in the church for these reasons. And so the mature Christian will not be driven and tossed when difficulty or conflict comes in their own life or in the life of the local church. In fact, difficulty and conflict should be expected and actually brings encouragement because Scripture informs us that it is in difficulty that the best growth actually occurs. And so this is why Paul could say elsewhere in Scripture, but outside of Colossians, he says in 2 Corinthians, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. What better evidence of these truths than the church of which Paul was a part in the first generation of the church. When people come to me and say, the church is broken, so it must not work, my response is, then it has never worked, because from day one, it was a mess. It is in looking at what happened to Paul in this first generation church and what they dealt with that we can gain a confident understanding of what we should expect in the life of the church today. And so we have come here in Colossians to the closing salutations of Paul's letter to the local church at Colossae. In this section of 12 verses, we will be given a glimpse by way of a snapshot into the life of the early church 
as the apostles stood up small fellowships throughout the empire and then handed off leadership to local elders. And what we will see is a theme prevalent throughout the entirety of the church's existence. That because we live between the first and second coming of Christ, we will sit in attention much like Paul does here in his salutations. We will be striving to see one another in the power of the gospel's transformation in almost an ideal fashion while also experiencing the beautiful mess that is life in the local church. We will have our eyes towards eternity, in other words, and we will also be sitting in the reality of the fact that we are not quite there yet. And so, just as Paul will indicate, our responsibilities in the midst of this will never change, even though we will encounter the good, the bad, and the ugly in our worship and ministry together. We are to constantly preach the truth of the gospel, We are to remind one another of the truth that it brings. We are to encourage each other in the difficulties that we will face. And we are to love one another through constant prayer and the giving of the grace of Christ to one another. And so my hope and prayer for us this morning is that in seeing these truths in this snapshot through the salutations, is that we as a church can have a realistic expectation for what our church should look like and what we're to expect in its midst. And when the good comes, we can rejoice, amen? And we can know the gospel is at work among us. And when the bad comes, we can stand firm, knowing that Christ is still Lord, he is still sovereign over his realm, and we can be encouraged at his work because the gospel is at work among us, amen? So this morning, we will be looking at the closing salutations for the encouragement of the church. Closing salutations for the encouragement of the church. And I hope as a side effect, what you'll also see is the truth that all scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. Even the salutations, even the introduction. And friends, yes, those of you that are reading through the Bible in a year, even the begats. All of it is useful. All of it is profitable. In these salutations, we will see Paul point to his messengers his companions, and then finish with some commands and a request on his own behalf. Let's read through its entirety now in Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. 
I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. First, we encounter Paul's salutations on behalf of his messengers. And in these, we will see Paul striving to call the church to the ideal of who we are in Christ. We first see Paul's messengers, the realignment of relationships brought about by the gospel. Paul's messengers, and in these messengers and the salutations he gives on their behalf, we see the realignment of relationships brought about by the gospel. Now, this just covers two individuals. In the Greek, Tychicus and Onesimus. We say Tychicus and Onesimus. They've been sent back to Colossae as messengers. Now, the task at hand for Tychicus and Onesimus is to recount to the fledgling church at Colossae, and then, as we will see, to the other churches in the same valley as Colossae, what has been taking place and what are Paul's activities. It is the preaching and advancement of the gospel that Christ reigns as Lord, and the statement that men and women are being enlivened at their heart level to be his obedient followers. Imagine this, in the empire where the statement of all town criers was, Caesar is Lord, the gospel of the kingdom is advancing, and Jesus is now being hearkened as Lord, and people are following him and stepping into a new way of life that is contrary and contrasting to that of the typical Roman citizen. And so men and women are being enlivened and converted, and this news was encouraging to the saints. But the encouragement was happening in a very difficult context. Remember that Colossians is one of what is termed the prison epistles or the captivity epistles, which are made up of Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and most likely Philippians. They're called this because Paul is imprisoned in Rome at this time, around 62 AD. And we know that he is imprisoned for preaching the gospel because this is what we're told at the end of Acts in 27 and 28. He was sent to Rome under the idea of appealing to Caesar. And it is this imprisonment in which, to which Paul is pointing when he says at the end of our text, remember my chains. But rather than discourage the saints, it is this imprisonment for the sake of the gospel that Paul intends to use to encourage them. Remember what he said back in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for the church's sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Friends, do we have this attitude when we have sufferings in the midst of our Christian walk or in the midst of this church? Do we say, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Thank you, Jesus, for the hardship that we are going through. Lord, help us have a heart like that. Amen? This was meant to encourage them. What a different mindset Paul has. Suffering for him, difficulty for him, was not a reason to give up or be discouraged or to move into a different path or route for the gospel. For him, it was expected and met with rejoicing. It's even evidence that what he was doing was truly in Christ. There's an old saying that many pastors have shared with me in the past when you share a difficult passage, that if you have people on one side of the aisle mad at you, and you have people on the other side of the aisle mad at you, you know you're speaking the truth, right? It's to be expected 
Because the world will not like the message that we have. And our flesh, even as Christians, oftentimes will rebel against the message that we have. And so the context that we must see Paul's words is in the difficulty of imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. An imprisonment that was called for by his kinsmen, the Jews, and the leaders with whom he once broke bread as a member of the Sanhedrin, and the leaders of the state who have largely dismissed his preaching. Can you even imagine what his mental health state must have been at this point? He must have been so tired and so alone, and yet he rejoices in these difficulties because it was in the shadow of these difficulties that Paul writes this encouragement, that Paul writes this entire letter, and specifically these words we see this morning. But none of this, dear friends, seemed to dull his view of Christ and Christ's church. If anyone, if anyone had a reason to say, I'm done with the church, the church has harmed me, friends, it would be Paul the apostle. But none of this dulls his view of Christ and Christ's church. Even in the darkness of suffering and struggle, Paul still has his eyes set on the ideal of who Christ is and who his followers are. And friends, we can take it one step further, can we not? If anyone could say, the church has harmed me, would it not be the very church's savior, Jesus Christ? And yet he still loves his bride, the church. Well, all this realigns the relationships Paul has with these men and this church whom he has never personally met. Look at how he speaks of these two men. Tychicus, he says, is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. First, Paul calls him a beloved brother. Friends, in this simple title, Paul is linking Tychicus to the family of God's people that he noted earlier in 3.12. You can probably look over on your page to see it. He says in 3.12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Christ was clear in the Gospels that those who do the will of the Father are in fact his redeemed family. Remember what he said in the Gospels. He said, those are not my mother and brothers and sisters. Whoever does the will of the Father is my mother, brother, and sisters. It's a realignment to this new family. When we call each other brother and sister, we don't do so because it's the hip thing to do. People don't even use the word hip anymore, right? (laughs) We do it because you are my brother and you are my sister if you are in Christ. Now, second, Paul calls him a faithful minister. The word minister here is diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. Paul is calling him a faithful servant to the church. In doing so, Paul is stating that he is to be trusted, not only to deliver the letter from Paul, but to act as Paul's emissary to this church, almost as if an interim pastor, so to speak. It was typical in this time for that same person to be the one who read the letter, and then, during that Sunday gathering, as they read it, gave commentary on its meaning, meaning much like I'm doing today. Paul is giving this man as a gift for a time to the church at Colossae, and he's saying, listen to him, follow what he says. And third, Paul calls him a fellow servant. In the Greek, the wording is more clear, a fellow slave or a fellow bondservant. He, like Paul, is a bondservant or slave of Christ and his gospel. He, too, has been conquered by Christ and made his own. You see, liberty in Christ is found by becoming his servant. And this language is important because of the context surrounding his next salutation, that of his friend Onesimus. You see, Onesimus, too, is listed out as a faithful, uh, as faithful and as a redeemed sibling in the Lord. 
But Paul's language is very particular here and elsewhere in this letter. Now, I know that all of you go back and reread the letter that we just went through because you're not ready to skip on to the next one. You want to get all of it, right? So you go back and you reread the letter we just read, right? If you don't, that's an encouragement to do so, if you got that, okay? And as you read back over the letter, you will notice a theme of servitude. This is something that is heavy on Paul's mind because he is enslaved in his imprisonment. But ultimately, because he is enslaved to Christ, Notice the wording throughout. I'll just give you a few of them. You can follow with me if you want in Colossians. In Colossians 1.7, Paul notes that Epaphras, the one who brought the letter, is a fellow servant, which is the same word he now uses for Tychicus, a fellow slave. In 2.8, Paul calls the Colossians not to be taken captive, not to be taken captive in 2.8 by false religious philosophies. And he instead paints a picture of the deliverance Christ has given them. He paints this in 1.13. And as a culmination of this theme, Paul points to Christ in heaven in 4.1 as our master to whom we must answer. This is why earthly masters were to treat their bondservants well. You see, Paul is leveling the playing field for the church in Colossae in order to make sure that all of the congregants know that in Christ there is not a new hierarchy of power that is put in place. Rather, all brothers and sisters in Christ are laid low in humility before our one master, Jesus the King, because he alone is Lord over all relationships. And any leadership he puts in place in the church or in the home is to model that and lead in that. Paul does all this work because Tychicus has been tasked with bringing Onesimus back to Colossae, his hometown. And friends, this would not be a welcome homecoming. We know this because Paul calls him one of you. Specifically, Tychicus is bringing Onesimus back to meet his former slave master, Philemon. The same Philemon to whom the letter by the same name is written by Paul that we'll look at over the next couple of weeks. But I just want us to pause for a second and begin to think through what this looked like practically at an earthly level in the church at Colossae. Tychicus strolls back through the front door of the gathering, which, remember, was in homes. The gathering at Colossae. The church members all turn, and they're excited to see this Tychicus, but then they see standing next to him Onesimus. This is the same Onesimus that fled from Philemon, potentially stole money from him, and ended up in prison alongside Paul. Paul did some discipleship of Philemon, He became a true converted brother in the faith and now is coming back to reconcile and make things right with his old master. Meanwhile, Paul, as we will see in Philemon, is going to ask this previous master to forgive his ex-servant and not take out the consequences on him that the government's law would allow. And even beyond that, to begin to see Onesimus as a brother in Christ. Friends, imagine that gathering Can you imagine the hushed whispers, the glassy stares, the icy reception? This was church drama at its highest pitch. And yet, this was the messiness of the church that was to be expected. And it was in this messiness that the gospel could achieve its most beautiful work by realigning relationships and reworking hearts and attitudes 
so that the beauty of reconciliation, which the gospel we follow is based upon, could take place. Friends, Paul didn't hide from difficult situations in the church, nor run away from them. He embraced them and pursued them so that the gospel could be seen most brightly. And this beautiful mess that is the church does not stop with Onesimus and Philemon, as we will see over the next couple weeks. It continues as we see Paul's companions. And in Paul's companions, we see the beautiful mess that is the church. The beautiful mess that is the church. Let's read verses 10 through 14 again. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Here Paul gives salutations from six others. And as we go through these, I want to ask us to notice the messiness that is entailed in who these people are and the situations in which they find themselves. And again, how Paul has realigned them in relationship, how he sees them in the ideal and yet also is dealing with them in the reality of the messiness of the church. The first three Paul notes are of the circumcision, meaning that they are Jewish Christians. And the last three are Gentile believers. First is Aristarchus. Paul notes him as a fellow prisoner. Most likely, Aristarchus was imprisoned along with Paul for the same reason Paul was, preaching the gospel of Christ as Lord in an empire where Caesar was supposed to be Lord. Aristarchus is mentioned in Acts 19 and 20 as one who accompanied Paul in his missionary journey through Asia Minor and Macedonia and Greece. He is one who knew the difficulty and struggle of being hated for the sake of the name of Christ. For the walk of the Christian is not one marked by guaranteed happiness nor guaranteed comfort in circumstance, but rather it's marked by assured tribulation and difficulty. Amen? The walk of a Christian is marked by assured tribulation and difficulty. Amen? Amen. And some of you are thinking, what did I sign up for? <laughs> it's marked by those things because we're preaching the gospel of a king that all of us at our base do not want to follow. And so we will have tribulation. Well, next he notes Mark, who is a fellow worker. Now, if you're not familiar, this is John Mark. Now, Scripture gives us a wonderful timeline for Mark, and it is a beautiful story of redemption and reconciliation. In Acts 12, we first meet him, and he joins Paul and Barnabas, his cousin, on their first missionary journey. But then, in short order, in Pamphylia, in Acts 13, he decides to leave and return to Jerusalem. You can go read that whole story in Acts 12 and 13. Now, we do not know the details of why he left, but it was frustrating and angering enough for Paul that in Acts 15, Paul got into a sharp disagreement with Barnabas about John Mark, which led to a parting of ways. Check it out, Acts 15, 37 through 40. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia 
and had not gone with them to the work. Now, before you think of them with halos over their heads in the usual fashion of stained glass, talking to each other, saying, I would like to reason with you that John Mark should go with us. I would like to reason with you that John Mark should not. Let's hug and pray. That is not what happened because it says, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, friends, read what's between those lines. There was sharp disagreement, which means that the brother, apostle, Paul, who writes the inspired word of God, who we follow, was human. He was human, and he existed in the messiness of the church once in a while. But this is the background that sets the stage for the beautiful story we have right here. Here, along with a statement in Philemon and 2 Timothy, Mark is noted as helpful to Paul and a fellow worker. We know from Peter's letters that he became an apprentice to Peter, even being the one to compile Peter's recollections of the ministry of Christ into the gospel that bears Mark's name. In this simple salutation that was written after these events occurred, here in Colossians 4, we get a glimpse at the beautiful mess of the church. As two human brothers in Christ have conflict, Paul and John Mark, and yet through the sovereign grace of Christ, years later, are able to reconcile it and once again move forward in gospel ministry together. Something that may not always happen in the church. In fact, it actually, unfortunately, rarely happens these days. But something we should always strive for, always pray for, as we balance the hope of what the church is called to with the reality of the messiness of the church in the current age. This is what the mess of the church looks like in reality. Let us set our expectations appropriately. We should always call ourselves friends to walk in the fullness of Christ's commands consistently, obediently, and perfectly, but not be shocked when we stumble. Well, last in the list of Jewish Christians, we see Justice, who is also a fellow worker of Paul. And all of these relationships are realigned because of the gospel, existing in the messiness of being redeemed humans, and yet commonly pursuing the work of spreading the gospel for the sake of the name. Paul then moves on to note the, the Gentile believers. But before we get to them, let's pause for a moment and realize the messiness that is included even in this reality. Three Jewish believers three Gentile believers, along with Paul. Now, a simple survey of the Bible shows, as Paul put it in Ephesians, that there is a dividing wall of hostility that existed between the Jews and Gentiles prior to Christ. A dividing wall of hostility. Notice that, not just a dividing wall, a dividing wall of hostility. Now, we saw in Easter, through Christ, the gospel was given even to the Gentiles. And the borders of the covenant people of God were open to those who were previously excluded. But let's just imagine for a moment, does that opening of the borders of Christ's kingdom mean that the cultural and linguistic and external differences just suddenly melted away and everyone sang kumbaya? Most likely not. We have evidence of this very fact in the discussion in Galatians where Paul mentions calling out Peter for his hypocrisy in the way he behaved towards the Gentiles when his Jewish buddies were around. So, the very fact that Paul is mentioning these brothers in the same breath as his Jewish brothers speaks volumes about the purposeful work he and they lived out in order for the messiness of the church 
not to get in the way of their ultimate goal, the declaration of the gospel. I wonder, and this is just a wonder, it is not inspiration, but I wonder if this was the situation that put Paul in a place where he was motivated to write, bear with one another. Perhaps he and all of his Jewish friends had to bear with the Gentiles once in a while and vice versa. It was the messiness of the church, but it was put aside for the ultimate goal, the declaration of the gospel. Well, first up in this list of Gentiles is Epaphras. Again, Paul shows his realignment of relationships and his purposeful view of the brethren through the eyes of Christ as he notes that Epaphras is a fellow bondservant and slave to Christ. And notice what Paul says. He is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, why would Paul say all this? He spends additional time on Epaphras. Well, remember that in chapter 1, Paul notes that it is Epaphras who comes to him, in a sense, uh, to tattle on the church that they are allowing false doctrines and empty philosophies and traditions in the church. And he's begging Paul to help him because it's getting out of control. In other words, Epaphras is in some major conflict with some in the church whom he is calling to account. Shocking, a pastor who's in conflict with people in his church. That's a joke, guys, laugh. Hard crowd today. It is likely that he was even what we would see today as the lead pastor of this church, and that's why, is because the job of the lead pastor is to call people to account, to call them to hold the scripture. So guess what? People are going to be frustrated with that guy, whoever that guy may be. And so Paul is doing his best. Sorry, I can't even say it with a straight face. Paul is doing his best to put in a good word for Epaphras while he is away so that any who might be in conflict with him would stop seeing him as their enemy and instead would realize he is a fellow bondservant of Christ and allow the gospel to reorder their view of him. Paul wants them to see that his challenging of them is in the same spirit as the love that is evidenced in his hard work for them and his labor on their behalf in prayer. He says, guys, look at Epaphras. He's praying for you. He's laboring for you. Trust him. He loves you. Now, you can almost imagine the drama when Tychicus comes and reads this letter to the body. Because Epaphras was staying with, Luke, uh, with Paul, you'll notice. Tychicus is coming on his behalf. So in other words, there was enough conflict where Epaphras was like, I got to get out of town for a while. I'm going to go with my mentor, see if he can help me and counsel me, send a word back. Tychicus comes back, the interim pastor. And imagine the drama when Tychicus comes and reads this letter to the body. When he gets to this point in the letter, you can imagine some are in agreement. Mm-hmm, they're saying. Some are anxious about the conflict going on. And some are sitting with arms crossed, holding bitterness against Epaphras, responding to Paul's words with shaking of heads and embittered hearts. Was this church any more unhealthy than Laodicea or Hierapolis or Mission Fellowship? No, friends, it's just the beautiful mess that is the church. <laughs> it's the beautiful mess that is the church. In the midst of our struggles is where the gospel will work most powerfully if we let it. If we constantly humble ourselves, pastor, elders, and congregants, if we constantly humble ourselves before the lordship of Christ over our lives and over our church. Well, next, Paul gives salutations from Luke, his beloved physician, his consummate travel partner, and the historian who recorded and provided the gospel of Luke and the history of the Acts of the Apostles. 
Another example of one who, if discouraged by suffering, could have easily walked away at any point along the timeline that he lays out in Acts. Luke could have walked away. He could have said, I am done with this. This is too much suffering. For he went, underwent discomfort and hatred and violent mobs and shipwrecks and persecution and much more right along with Paul. I can only imagine how often he questioned what they were doing. Paul, are you sure this is working? Are you sure that we're doing the right thing? Are you sure we're on the right road? And Paul every time would say, keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's okay. But what held him fast in the midst of that struggle was the core of the gospel that was playing out so evidently before them. This was Luke. And this is why Luke is mentioned here and in Philemon. And finally, Paul gives salutations from Demas. Now, Demas is an interesting one. He is the opposite story of John Mark. There we see a great story of division, unfortunately, that led to reconciliation, fortunately, as evidence of the beautiful mess that is the church. But with Demas, it does not have as happy of an ending. For here and in Philemon, Paul notes Demas as one who is co-laboring with him. And obviously, at this point in the story, 62 AD, the relationship is good. But then shortly thereafter, possibly within the span of a couple years, conflict had occurred and Demas showed that his heart had not truly been converted. This is from what was most likely Paul's final letter before his death, written a couple years after the letter to the Colossians and Philemon. In 2 Timothy 4.10, it says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, it seems, from Paul's perspective and from the inspired word of God, had hardened his heart to the kingdom of Christ and specifically to Paul and his companions. As a pastor who has experienced similar events, I can only imagine the questions that were coming about. Paul, what did you do wrong to make him leave? Is he a Christian or not? Friends of Demas most likely found themselves caught in the middle between Paul and Demas. From others' perspectives, it probably was not as cut and dried as Paul made it. It was, dear brothers and sisters, I guarantee, an absolute mess. The mess of the church. Division, conflict, abandonment. Friends, they happen in the midst of the most healthy groups of Christians and the most healthy churches. Why? Because we're still on this side of Christ's second coming. And the fullness of our conversion to our resurrected bodies has not occurred yet. And so every once in a while, the remnants of the flesh show themselves in our actions. And yet the gospel still progresses and Christ is still glorified. And like John Mark and Demas illustrate, those that are Christ's will eventually show that they are his in their actions. When I read this section on Demas, I find myself falling to my knees and begging the Lord that the rest of the story was that Demas at one point said, you know what, it's not worth it. And he comes back in reconciliation to Paul. We don't know. That could have occurred. And that's my hope and prayer is that one day we get to heaven and Demas says hi to all of us. Those that are his will eventually show that they are his in their actions. But sometimes there are blips. Sometimes there are bumps in the road. Those that are not his, they will show that they are not. And so we as Christians in the midst of this mess can trust the Lord with his church. 
the church that we see as a beautiful mess. But friends, he sees it as his beautiful bride being prepared and adorned for eternity. And so we are left with the reality that the church is flawed, and yet the church is a beautiful, miraculous blessing, a bride of Christ, of which any who are truly in Christ are a part. In this in-between kingdom in which our hearts have been converted, yet our flesh remains, we will see glimpses of the invisible church that is truly of Christ, and we will see glimpses of the visible church full of both wheat and tares. But through it all, we must not base our ability to endure on our perceptions or unreasonable expectations or on the ups and downs of those we find ourselves in fellowship with. But we base our ability to endure on the gospel of Jesus Christ that has brought each of us life. And so we push ahead, doing what the church has always done, preaching the gospel, living out the gospel and loving one another through both encouragement and conviction and standing firm in prayer that the Lord will hold us fast, because he alone can do so. And it's in this same spirit that Paul finishes this book of Colossians, this epistle of Colossians, with some commands to the church. And this is what we see lastly. Paul's commands, collective and individual responsibilities of the Christian. Paul's commands, the collective and individual responsibilities of the Christian. Take a look at verse 15. He says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. Here we notice Paul calling upon the collective church as well as one individual in particular, Archippus. Let's look at Archippus first. We learn in the opening of the letter uh, to Philemon that Archippus is a beloved fellow worker in the church at Colossae. Take a look there, Philemon 1, 1 through 2. And really, it's just one chapter, so it's really just verses 1 through 2. Uh, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and notice this part, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. He is somehow deeply related to Philemon and a woman named Aphia, all of whom are engaged in the proclamation of the gospel as the local church in Colossae. But notice here that he's called a fellow soldier. The Greek here is a word that means he, like Paul, is undergoing extreme toil and struggle for the sake of the gospel. There is much speculation about what this means. Perhaps he was another elder struggling in the toil of leading a young church. Or maybe some commentators suggest it was more personal and specific than that. Because of his tie to Philemon and Onesimus and his mention in both Colossians and Philemon, perhaps he was intended as the one meant to be a mediator between Philemon and Onesimus. That would be a difficult ministry to fulfill. He was going to have to enter into the difficult position of this messy relational conflict and help bring the gospel to bear if this was the case something that all of us as Christians are called to, but few take on. Regardless, Paul singles him out publicly and commands him to fulfill the ministry he had been given in the Lord. Often in the church, especially in America, friends, we can confuse ease with calling. If something is easy for me to do, if it doesn't put a strain on my life, then I must be called to it. But that is never the case in the ministry of the gospel. Ministry will be strain. 
but it is a strain we are all called to. All of us, everyone in this room. You may not be called to a certain office or a certain role, but you are called to ministry. This is part of what it means to bear our cross and to bear one another's burdens. It will be straining. It will not be comfortable. Oh, but friends, it will be glorious. When our brothers or sisters call upon us, or your church states that it needs something of you, brothers and sisters, be willing to endure some strain for the sake of Christ and his people. When you know by the command of Christ that you need to enter into a difficult situation to mediate reconciliation or to call someone to account, be willing to endure some strain for the sake of Christ and his people. For if Jesus or Paul or Archippus, for that matter, dismissed the ministry to which they had been called because of difficulty, where would you and I be? We would be dead in our sin without the knowledge of Christ. Fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And if you don't know what that is, well, we should be reminded of Paul's call in the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. In other words, he gave leaders in the church specific roles, specific offices to equip the saints. Raise your hand if you're a saint. Everybody, raise your hand if you're a saint. If you're a Christian, you are a saint, okay? Until, uh, for the building up of the body of Christ, there's your ministry. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is your ministry, dear friends? The building up of the body of Christ, which entails evangelism to those who are yet to be saved because they will be added and build up the body of Christ, which includes loving one another, encouraging one another, uh, praying for one another every day. And it also means challenging and convicting one another in the truth, in love, calling us to account to walk in the holiness of Christ. This is every single saint's ministry. Each of us has a part in this ministry of Christ's body. Even if there is no specific title or role, we all have a part to play. And so brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, are there areas you've been called to by the body, things that we just covered or maybe specific roles, but you have pushed back because they have been difficult or might cause difficulty in your life? Perhaps God is calling you to enter into that difficulty as part of your sanctification. And so let's call one another to this ministry as a body. Amen? Well, Paul lays out what some of those responsibilities are as he closes. And they can largely be categorized into mutual encouragement and prayer and grace. These are things that we should all be doing as the collective body of Christ. He first asks them to greet the brothers at another local church nearby in the Lycus Valley named Laodicea. Uh, you can see this map, hopefully. Oh, go back. There we go. It's having a hard time loading. We'll see if technology catches up. There it is. Uh, and he says specifically, uh, hello to Nympha who hosts a portion of the church in her house. Now, remember, this was in the days prior to their gathering uh, in sites or church buildings where everyone instead met in homes. And this is a point of debate too, this idea of nympha. Uh, the ESV casts this as a female, but other translations, such as the New King, King James, make it the male equivalent of the name nymphos, 
whether it was a male elder of a home church or simply a wealthy hostess to the church that met in her home, Paul is clearly showing that the Christian walk is one in which we need one another and the mutual encouragement that our fellowship brings. And so these churches that were in close proximity to each other, they formed this mutual encouragement. Now, we try to model this for you as we pray for sister churches in our pastoral prayers, and we would encourage you to pray for them as well. We need the mutual encouragement that our common fellowship in the gospel brings as churches and as individuals. And so, brothers and sisters, rather than wait for encouragement from others, I want to challenge you to be those who take encouragement to one another. There is literally no call in the Gospels or in the the letters of the New Testament to wait for someone else to bring encouragement to you, and yet that's often where we find ourselves as American Christians. Instead, the call is for you to encourage one another. Take encouragement to one another. Pray for our brothers and sisters in the Willamette Valley in the Northwest Church Network. Pray for our brothers and sisters within other churches in Salem. Pray for your brothers and sisters within this church. Are you purposefully doing that in your daily devotion to Christ? It'll be amazing what happens to your heart when you do so and how much it has shifted from worrying about self to caring about others. But then he also commands that this letter written first to Colossae would become what is called an encyclical or one that cycles through the local churches and is read for edification and encouragement. In 2 Peter, Peter declares that Paul's letters are scripture. And so Paul is not off in commanding that these inspired words be given to the church as a whole. And we are blessed to obey the same old, age-old command that Paul gave to Colossae. We too, in this church, have read it aloud, and we have studied it in depth, as have other sister churches around the world. We again uh, gain encouragement when we hear from other pastors who fill this pulpit or send us videos from Burkina or give us updates from their ministry in the Philippines or in Indonesia. All of this is meant to encourage us right where we are at to live out lives of obedience to Christ and to continue preaching the gospel as it is proclaimed in these letters. Now, just as a side note, just because I want to nerd out for a second, the letter to Laodicea is no longer one that we have, but there is some debate if it wasn't originally Laodicea that was the first destination for the letter that we now know as the book of Ephesians. Neither here nor there, but a great example of how these letters circled through the church for encouragement, and we do the same today. Now, Paul also lays on them the responsibility for prayer. He notes that it is indeed himself, Paul the Apostle, that writes this letter, bearing his own mark. It was common for men of his status to have a secretary, or the fancy word is an amanuensis, or a scribe, which wrote down what was dictated. But if that were the case, he still signs it himself to give it individual attention. And then right after, he asks in succinct phrasing for them to remember him in their prayers and to specifically pray for him in the midst of his imprisonment. Friends, even the Apostle Paul, in the messy life of ups and downs that is Christianity, knew he needed prayer and encouragement from other believers. For he too made mistakes, he too was broken at times, but he too was also redeemed in Christ. We need this as a lifeline in the struggles of this life. We need prayer, regular, ongoing prayer for one another. Members of mission, please take time this week to pray through your fellow members in the directory. If you do nothing else as a member in this church, do that. It is one of the core responsibilities that you have as a member responsible for the other members in this body. Make time for it. 
And let that prayer spur you on to building relationships with those that you don't know as well. When you come across a face and a name in the church that you know nothing about, what can you pray for them? You can pray for them to be a servant of Jesus Christ, for their heart to be truly converted to him, to give thanks to the Lord for calling them to himself, and for them to be firmly planted in the faith. You can do that for any Christian, those you don't know in the directory. Now imagine, though, what happens the next Sunday when you walk up to them and say, brother, sister, I was praying for you. And they say, I have no idea who you are. And you say, I know, but you're my brother and sister in Christ. And so, therefore, I prayed for you. All of a sudden, a friendship starts where one would not have been aside from the gospel. It is a beautiful thing that will build up the heart of this church. Paul himself, the apostle, says, please remember my chains, meaning remember me in your prayers, in my difficulties. Let's be a church that prays for one another. And lastly, Paul calls the church to collectively walk in the grace of the Lord. He says, grace be with you. This is not a simple salutation, peace out, right? That's not what he's saying. It is all that we have as Christians. It is the core of all we are and all we do. Grace, grace, sovereign grace. The grace of God has allowed us to be his own and to be reconciled to him. The grace of God has given us our ministry to one another in this family that he has assembled. And the grace of God is what will help us endure in the midst of this beautiful mess so that we can walk in the realigned relationship that the gospel has created. Friends, Paul's prayer at the beginning of this letter was the same as the prayer that he noted from Epaphras in verse 12. That they may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God and that they may know the fullness of the Lord that they follow in all his supremacy. It is my prayer that we do the same here at Mission Fellowship. It is my prayer, friends, that when we encounter the messiness, the beautiful and miraculous mess that is the church, we do not get discouraged, but we smile and we give thanks and we rejoice and we say, thank you, Lord, for this present suffering because we will be sanctified through it and your gospel and glory will be seen. We can trust him in that. Amen, church? I'm thankful to God for his inspired word to the church at Colossae, which will help us to do that. And I pray that this book has helped every one of us grow more into the image of Christ and be encouraged in the fact that we are right where we need to be, walking in the grace of Jesus Christ. Mission Fellowship, grace be to you. Amen? Amen. Amen.